welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Beautiful people of Doxodeo Hatfield. You all look so beautiful, even Manalisi. So, so it's just great to be with you guys this morning and to spend some time in the Word. But uh, I think let's jump in because there's a lot to cover. But we're going to be standing still on John 15. So for those of you that want to get your Bibles out, you can head there so long. But I love a good love story. Now, I knew most of the men would be away at camp. So, so for those of you that maybe aren't connecting to the good love story and you guys are like, Skops Kitten Donner is your kind of thing. Yes, I said Donner in church, I'm sorry. Um, but, but yeah, just park that for a moment. But I love a good love story. Can't you just see it? Boy meets girl. Girl is a corporate lawyer slash baker from the big city who's come back to visit her family for the holidays. Okay, boy is a coffee farmer slash secret billionaire slash secret prince from some island somewhere. And uh, yeah, he, he has Wakanda, Wakanda. Are we talking about you now, Mano? Okay, so, so he has never found love. And uh, boy wants to buy girl's family's business so he can build a coffee shop slash empire in its place. And girl fights for the family business, but while she's fighting, they fall deeply in love. Yes, as they spend time together. Boy and girl come up with new plan to not only preserve the family business, but they are going to build on its legacy and they become partners in this business where he will make coffee and she will bake and they will live happily ever after. And credits roll while they kiss passionately for the first time. Now, now I, I don't know, it, it could just be me, but I think Maya and I have been watching too much Hallmark. Um, but yes, yes, I've just described the plot of every Hallmark movie ever made. Okay, it's exactly the same, but, um, but seriously, for a minute. Um, I, I love seeing someone in deep smit. Yes, I said smit, not the other thing that you were thinking. Um, as in, they are smitten. Some of you have never heard that word, because I'm old. Um, but, but really, what smitten means is you are head over heels in love with somebody, and that love has really overtaken you. For some of you, you can't remember back that far <laughs> to when you were in deep smit. For some of you, you're in that place right now. For some of you, you've just gotten married, so you are still in la-la land, and it's awesome and glorious, but, but really, one of the things I love most is to actually go to weddings, and, and at most weddings, there's this moment where the bride is coming up the aisle, and the groom is turned, and he locks eyes with her for the first time, and that look on his face, as he looks on her for the first time, and he's like, this is my destiny, this is something beautiful and incredible, I love that look. 
I love being in those moments. And let, let's face it, I'm a sucker for a good love story. I love it when, when the Lord has brought two incredible people together. But there's an, yeah, I just want to say this morning, there's a more extravagant love story than this one. And that's the one between the creator and his creation. As we continue in our series in the book of John, we see John and he's speaking about what it means to be in Jesus. And Jesus comes and he shares this profound passage about love and not only love for God, but also love for God's people, for other people. And, and I wonder if that's where we can start this morning. And we're going to really work through John 15, but I want us to do a little bit of a swapsie and start in the middle of John 15 this morning. So we're going to be starting at verse 9 and reading from verse 9 to verse 17. And it says there, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands, and I remain in His love. And I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from the Father. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. Love one another. It's just this beautiful, beautiful chain reaction that I see in this story as Jesus speaks. He goes, the Father loves me. The Father loves Jesus. Jesus loves us the way the Father loves him. And then we get to love others the way Jesus loves us. And then others get to know the Father's love. And it's this beautiful circle and, and great love fest, have I mentioned, that I love, love. But he then urges us to remain in his love. Now, we're going to cover it in, in just a couple of minutes, but, but just before this, Jesus is speaking about this imagery of a vine and branches, and he speaks of remaining connected to the vine, and the vine is Jesus. So there's this remaining in, it's this connected in, and, and throughout today's preach, we're going to be speaking about what it looks like to actually remain in that place of connectedness, and it's... It's amazing to me that so often Jesus speaks in parables and riddles that are sometimes hard on the surface to get to grips with. But, but really here he's speaking so plainly. It's, it's like he's just laying it all out and he's going, um, yeah, remain in me. And, and immediately my question is, okay, but how? How do I remain in you? And then he immediately follows up and he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Okay, Jesus. Okay, next question. What do you command? You, you say, I need, to, I need to keep your command, and it's right there. He goes, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. And he carries on to say, I chose you. I appointed you. Go bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? By loving one another. 
So it's just, I love it. I love that he's just so plain about it. He's like, you want to know what the crux of the matter is? This is the crux of the matter. This is how you love me. This is how you love people. Do you want to hear another epic love story? Don't worry, it's not about Maya and I, because I know you've all heard that one before. Um, But God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit exist in relationship. And God creates man, and, and man chooses to sin. The tension moment comes because there's always the tension moment, isn't there? The relationship is broken and, and God pursues man and he sends his son to restore the relationship. Jesus dies for us. We're restored to a full and loving relationship with God. And we now get to love the world with that same love here and now. And we get to love God for all of eternity. And the credits roll. That is the epic love story. Now, that's a beautiful story, but it's not that simple, is it? We've, we've all had life happen to us. I believe that for most of us, that would be our story, but we end up inserting extra scenes and, and extra tragedy and extra stuff in there that probably shouldn't be a part of the story. We're good until the, we now get to love the world with the same love part. Because it's great to love God, but when we start to love people and, and do life and the stuff gets in there, then life happens, kids happen, debt happens, crazy family members happen. Yes, and if you don't have any, it's probably you. Um, but work and a million other things get in the way of what should be an epic love story. We give our lives to Christ, but as we try to walk out our faith, slowly but surely, we give away little pieces of our heart that we've already given to Jesus. I remember giving my life to Christ. I was sold out, and I was head over heels in love with Jesus, and I sang the songs, and I prayed the prayers, and I did the things, and, and all the while, I was declaring the following thing. Hey, baby, that is, that is my little girl back there. Sorry. But all the while, I'm busy declaring this thing. I go, I will go where you send me, and I will do what you ask, Jesus, no matter the cost. That's what I was declaring, and, and then I started working, <laughs> and, uh, and a little bit of my heart went to work, and, uh, and the line became, I will go where you send me and do what you ask between the hours of 5 p.m. and bedtime. So, so it changed a little bit. And then I got married to the most incredible woman in the world. And a lot of my heart went there and the line became, I will go where you send me and do what you ask, but family comes first. And then Ari, our daughter, arrived. And man, a whole lot of my heart went there. And the line became, I will go where you send me and do what you ask, as long as it never affects my family negatively. And then life got complicated and hard and we lost parents and jobs and friends and struggles of life crept in and and my heart was given to fear and safety and security and the line became, life is complicated and tough. If it's okay, I'm going to stop saying that line, Jesus. I'll try to serve you if and when I can, but please don't ask me for anything. And, and you see, the newly saved me knew something. The newly saved me knew that nothing else I could or would ever do would be as significant as loving and living Jesus. But for so many of us, we've taken other lovers and we've given pieces of our heart away. And no matter what the world may tell you, your heart cannot belong to more than one. So 
Maybe you're sitting here and you're going, what other lovers? Especially if you're sitting next to your significant other and you're going, there is no other lover, I promise. <laughs> but, um, but let's take a look at a couple of those other lovers quickly. The first, the first other lover that might have stolen your heart away is you. Maybe it's you, yourself. You're sometimes the other lover. And Jesus plainly said, anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So often we have our plan of what our life needs to look like and what we want it to be. And somewhere along the line, we convince ourselves that the whole story, all of creation, everything that there is revolves around our life, our needs, what we want, our happiness, our security that we're the center of the universe. And it's so easy to think that because, because really it's, it's almost human nature. Um, Ari has learned a new word in our house and it is the dreaded word, mine. Everything belongs to her. Our phones, mine. The food, mine. The TV, mine. And we hear it all the time because everything and everyone in this universe exists to serve her needs and to do what she needs done. And our role as good parents is to actually teach her that she is indeed not the center of the universe. But really, that's, that's a hard thing to do. If anyone knows how, please tell me. Shay, Joe, you're doing a great job. Let me know. Um, but but yeah, so, so first of all, we fall in love, maybe give our heart away to us. But maybe the second thing that we fall in love with in this world are the things in the world. This life isn't all there is. In fact, compared with eternity, it's pretty short. And we've got a short time on this planet, friends. I don't know if you guys have realized we've only got like 70 plus years with uh, modern medicine, maybe 100. Um, but we've got such a short time, and yet we go through life thinking we can stockpile more and more stuff. It's the cars, it's the money, it's the right house, and we give our hearts to things and the pursuit of things. And heaven forbid, if God asks us to give away one of those things, He has blessed us with. Can you imagine if every time we make an unselfish or generous decision and we're struggling with it, can you imagine what it would look like if we ask ourselves the following thing? Will this matter when I'm standing in heaven face to face with Jesus? Because when we take our crisis or our question from here to there, it reframes it, doesn't it? That 10 rand that he's asking us to give to some guy at the side of the road doesn't look quite as important as it does just before we reframe what he's asking us to do. Thirdly, we give our hearts to the people in this world. We give our hearts to the people in this world. And this is a hard one for me because I find it easy to give my heart to people. And sometimes I give my heart so completely that what people need take priority over what God wants. I've had relationships in the past where God's telling me, you know what, this is not good for you. These people are not good for you. These things that you've surrounded yourself with is not good for you. But I've been so much more concerned about what the people think than what God is telling me to do. And really, sometimes it's not even the people that are bad for us that take our hearts. Sometimes the opposite is true. I love my wife, I love my daughter, and, and often time with them and their needs take priority over my time with God. So please hear me. 
what am I not saying? I am not saying that we all need to go live on top of a mountain in a hut with no Wi-Fi, no wife, and uh, live off whale blubber dinners for the rest of our life. Because uh, while that sounds fantastic, <laughs> um, God wants us to have ambition. He wants us to love the people in our lives well, our wives, our children. Because when we do, what does that do? It glorifies Him, okay? But He wants to know that our hearts will always, first and foremost, be His. And he wants to know that whatever he asks, we will submit to. That's what he wants. So my question to you is this. Who is the love of your life, friends? Who is the love of your life? Shoo, is it hot in here? Um, I, I feel a little uncomfortable and I feel convicted just in preaching this message. And it's such a hard word for me to bring. But I don't want it to be a word that makes you feel guilty for time not spent with God or anything like that. If, if life really is anything, it's a wrestling match for who has your heart. It's a wrestling match for who has your heart. Things will always be wrestling to pull it away from its first love. There's always going to be stuff. Our job is to keep submitting it to God so he can help us to love him more. So here we are. We recognize that we have divided hearts. I think we can all recognize. Has anyone just felt something as I've been speaking that you can recognize? Okay, maybe my heart isn't 100% on the God seat. And, uh, and we recognize that. And I want to suggest three things this morning that we can do to keep our hearts firmly planted and grounded in a love for Jesus. The first one is get to know your Father. Get to know the Father. And Jesus in John 15 shares this word picture which explains our relationship with the Father and, uh, and also with Jesus. And I wonder if we can give it a read. So back to John 15 on your phones. Um, if you're using your phone, I hope that's all you're looking at. Get off Instagram, go to John 15. Um, John 15 verse 1, and it reads as follows. I'm the true vine and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they're burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So in this picture, and I love this picture, Jesus is the vine and God is the gardener. And, and I love this picture because I can relate to it. Um, at home, we do not have the swankiest garden. In fact, you're going to see more ground than you are going to see garden. But we, we have started and we are learning, okay? So, so be patient with us. But before we got our home as a prophetic act, what we did was we drove to Ludwig's Roses and we bought a rose bush. 
And for a long time, it was just sitting in its little plastic baggy packaging, and we had nowhere to plant it, and we were watering it, and it wasn't entirely happy, but, but eventually the Lord blessed us with our home, and, and we went and we planted it in this plot of land, and it made it beautifully through the first year. It survived, and uh, it grew and it struggled a little bit, but it was happy. And, and then uh, winter was over, spring came, and Maya did some research, and she decided, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prune this thing. And she went at it. And I swear to you, she left a stub that was about that long. And I thought for sure, this is the end. This thing has died, okay? And... Um, And little did I know that that bush would come back bigger and hardier and full of more roses than it's ever had before. Because all of the dead stuff, all of the stuff that was draining the life and nutrients from it had been pruned off and it had a chance to just grow again and thrive. And really that's how I see God in this picture. Because he, he lovingly, he prunes the branches. The dead ones, he cuts off the vine. And the living ones that need a bit of pruning get trimmed and cleaned up so that they can be the best life-giving branch that they can be. And Jesus keeps it all going, and he gives life to each of the branches. But make no mistake, what this picture reminds me of is the fact that, number one, I am not the vine. Number two, I am not the gardener. I am just a branch. I'm just a branch. And while the father lovingly takes the time to prune and know me, this parable reminds me that the story is not about me. On a related note, I am now the proud owner of a Maya lemon tree and a key lime tree, Um, both great trees for baking. So watch this space, Uh, pray for a good crop and you might benefit. Um, But yes, when the time comes, I will be pruning both of those trees. There's this phrase Jesus uses in verse 4, and he says, remain in me and I in you. And, and it made me stop because I had to think about what does that actually mean? How do I remain in Jesus? And how do I make sure he remains in me? So the good news I have for you is if you've given your life to Christ, Jesus is in you. <laughs> he's not going anywhere. He's with you. He's in you. And and really, he, he remains in you. We remain in him by doing what he says and by loving God, by keeping our hearts turned towards pursuing him. And then, of course, by loving others with that same love, with that same love. But now, what about the dead branches? Because I know some of you might be thinking about dead branches, and, and there are those moments where you're like, am I a dead branch? Is God just going to lop me right off that vine? <laughs> And, uh, and really, I, when I think about the dead branches, I think almost of, you know, a graft that didn't take. Did it, have any of you seen that in gardening where they actually take a different tree and they try and graft it onto a tree? And really, sometimes grafts don't take. And I think about the seed that fell on rocky or thorny soil and the ones who made a quick commitment but fell away when they realized what it means to follow Jesus. And these are the people that could not or would not submit their hearts to the gardener and the pruning that he wanted to do. So how about you? I I know what my answer is. (laughs) But how about you? Are you willing to submit to the pruning that God wants to do in your life? When he shows us the people, the things, the idols that have stolen our hearts away, are we willing to submit to him and to walk away from those things? 
Because in verse 8 in this passage, it says that the Father is glorified when we bear fruit. And the honest truth is, friends, and I think we can all admit it, it's hard to bear fruit when we have parasites and dead leaves and any manner, manner of dead things sucking all the good nutrients from us. So are you willing to submit to a pruning? I think the bigger question that I have for you today, because it is about love, is do you love the gardener? Do you love the gardener? The, the interesting thing that I had to rediscover as I, as I was preparing for the sermon is that our love for him will always come out of his love for us. It will always come out of his love for us. Do you love this God who is everything or do you just love everything he gives you? Do you really know and believe that God loves you individually and personally and intimately? Do you see him as Abba Father? And, and really the reason this is important for us to answer is because I'm never going to submit myself to be pruned by someone I don't love and I don't trust and someone who I don't believe loves me. There's uh, this interesting term I learned in the last week. It's called lifeman. Um, it was in this, this uh, premarital course, and this couple was speaking about, you know what, sometimes all we end up speaking about is the lifeman. So it's like life admin. Um, and they never do life together. They never have those passionate moments anymore because it's all about the lifeman. And my question to you is, is all you speak about to God anymore the lifeman? Is it, is it just the life stuff? Is it, God, please protect my family and my kids and protect me and give me security and give us money and, and watch over us? Or are there moments where you actually stop and just stare at the awesome majesty of who God is? That's why I, I say in this, in, in this passage, we need to know and, and really see God for who he is and have those moments where we stop and we think about, I am an infinitesimally small speck in a giant universe and this God chooses to still love me and he is amazing and he is awesome and he is great. But I need to see him for who he is if I'm going to allow him to prune my life. So I've got a question for you, and it's an interesting question for church. What do you do if you find yourselves in a place where you realize that you don't have much love for God right now? Because maybe some of you are sitting here and you're going, oh, shocker, I've just said that in church. Some of you are here, and you're here because either a spouse dragged you here or your conscience did. And, uh, and you're sitting here and you're going, God, you know what, worship is great, but I'm struggling to love you right now. And I think the place we start when we find ourselves in that place in life is to recognize that the love for God and the people that we need to cultivate comes from God. I think there's something about just being honest with God and saying, God, I need your strength. I need you to give me the love I need to love you. Have you even thought about that, that God can empower you to love him more in the seasons that you're not feeling love for God? A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, he says it this way. He says, oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire, oh God the triune one, I, I, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory. 
I pray thee so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I've wandered so long. How incredible is that? Where he's just going, come God, I, I long to be in love and fervently in love with you, but I'm not feeling it all the time. Come and birth that in me. There's another uh, yeah, great preacher, Francis Chan, and he writes in his book, Crazy Love, the following, and maybe you can resonate with it. It says, if you merely pretend that you enjoy God or love him, he knows. You can't fool him. Don't even try. Instead, tell him how you feel. Tell him that he isn't the most important thing in this life to you and that you're sorry for that. Tell him that you've been lukewarm and that you've chosen whatever over him time and time again. Tell him that you want him to change you, that you long to genuinely enjoy him. Tell him that you want to experience true satisfaction and pleasure and joy in your relationship with him. Tell him you want to love him more than anything on this earth. Tell him you want to treasure the kingdom of heaven so much that you'd willingly sell everything in order to get it. Tell him what you like about him, what you appreciate, and what brings you joy. So that's number one, guys, knowing the Father. Number two, putting this life in its proper perspective. Putting this life in its proper perspective helps us to love Jesus. When I shared that epic love story earlier about God and, and man and, and what he did to reconcile us to him, I, I, I said God and man, but did you notice I never put my own name in there and I didn't put yours in there either? And, and really the reason I didn't do that is because, like we said, this story is not about us. We are a blip on a timeline. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But, uh, but really about 600 years from now, most people will have forgotten that we were ever here. So, so really, we approach our lives in spite of that as if the universe, the earth, all peoples everywhere were put here to serve us. And, and we went and figured out if we were to make all time, all time from beginning to end, depending on when it ends, a movie, we've only got about two-fifths of a second long scene to live. I don't know about you, but I want my two-fifths of a second to be about making much of God. I want it to count for him. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says it this way. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is what our two-fifths of a second needs to be about. So what does that mean for you? It means your part is to bring him glory. Whether you're eating a sandwich on a lunch break or it's 12.04 a.m. and you are trying your best to stay awake so you can study or you're watching your four-month-old take a nap, whatever it looks like, you can bring him glory in that moment. The point of your life is to point to him. The point of your life is to point to him. Whatever you're doing, God wants to be glorified because the whole thing is his. It's his movie. It's his world. God is deserving of our lives now. And I don't know about you, but I make excuses for why I can't love him now. God, when my kids are out of the house, I will give you more time and I will love you. When my job is less demanding, I will give you more time and I will love you. When my studies are done, when I finished my master's, when, uh, you know, X has happened, then I will be ready and I will give you my heart. Well, what if I tell you God wants to use you now? 
where you are, where you find yourself, the you you are right now can live with a heart rooted in his love and his agenda. So when I start looking at my life, the short hundred years, if I'm lucky in the proper perspective, and I realize that what I'm facing, the persecution I might face, the things God is asking me to let go of, when I see these things in the light of eternity with him, suddenly the flashy car, the house that needs to look just right, the reputation, all of those things, my career, all of them lose some of their significance in light of the fact that they won't be there when I get to heaven. Do you know who will be? Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, and other believers who have stayed the course. That's the stuff that matters. That's the stuff that's important, friends. And and really, when I look at my life from that perspective, what he wants for me, my heart, my character, what he asks of me, what he prunes off me, that matters far more than anything else I could ever achieve or anything I could ever do in this place. So I want to share three quick stories with you guys. And don't worry, they're not long. The first is about a family called the Michaels family. And they are this incredible family of five. Three kids under the age of 10. And do you know how they choose to celebrate Christmas every year? They uh, get together a whole bunch of stuff. They load up coffee and food into the back of a little red wagon. And then with the eager help of their three-year-old, they pull the wagon around the mostly empty streets in search of homeless folks to go and bless on Christmas morning. And all three of those kids look forward to this time of giving a little bit of tangible love to people who otherwise would have been cold and probably without breakfast. Can you think of a better way to start the holiday that celebrates the God of love? Then I want to tell you about Susan Jameson. Now, in her late 40s, Susan grew up in a home where God was sought, and she's tried to obey him her whole life, and she served him in many ways. I mean, she served high school students and youth groups and at public high school, and she's taught young mothers how to parent, and she's raised four kids, which, yes, is also serving God and glorifying him. But when Susan was young, she told God she, he, she would do anything for him, except she never wants to speak from a stage. She says, I'll do anything for you but that thing. And would you believe it? What does God call her to do? She ended up heading to Uganda on a missions trip, and she was asked to lead a women's conference, and she had to be the speaker. And she had to speak over and over again on that stage, and she was willing to do it. Because at first, the thought of this terrified her, but tears still come to her eyes when she talks about it. She submitted. She said yes to God, and she did the one thing she hoped she would never have to do. And then there's Lucy. Lucy, uh, well, if you met her at church, you'd probably think she was somebody's innocent dear grandmother. Um, But she's the kind of woman who'll come and give you a huge hug and then introduce herself. And you'd never guess that Lucy was an ex-prostitute. When she was in her teens and early 20s, drugs and prostitution dominated her life. and, And through an older Christian woman who reached out to the prostitutes, Lucy met Jesus and her life was completely transformed. So to this day, almost 40 years later, where does she live? She lives close to where she used to prostitute herself. She lives close to that space. And why does she keep living there? So she can minister to each and every one of the ladies that continues to do just that. She comes. She know, they know her house is always open. She opens her house up to anyone that needs. She invites them in. And this is her way of loving people who are desperate and in need of the hope and love that Lucy found 40 years ago. So my question is, what does your story look like? It doesn't have to sound radical. It doesn't have to be crazy. 
but I really hope that it points people to Jesus. So really my final point as I close this morning is this. If you want to choose to live a life that's rooted in love for Jesus and others, be prepared to be known as a little bit crazy. Okay. All of these people sound a little bit crazy by normal standards. Um, but really, uh, Francis Chan puts it this way. He says, let's make crazy normal. Let's make crazy normal. Jesus concludes John 15 with a scripture, and I think now's a good time to share it. And we'll pick up in verse 18. But he says the following, and you have to keep in mind, he spoke about love, he spoke about the vine, and being connected to the vine, he spoke about loving others, and suddenly he pivots, and he says the following, he says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, however, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. So Jesus pivots from love me and love others and then get ready. <laughs> and, and it's so hard to have that pivot. But, but why do you think Jesus shares this? I think he explained the vine, the gardener. He explained the branches and he explained love and he explained loving people and and there are just so many stories of people choosing to love and live radically for Jesus. But, but what so many of them find is that the minute they start doing that, people start getting uncomfortable. And people start urging them not to keep doing what they're doing. They, they start to say, do a little less for others. Do a little more for yourself. What? What? You want to give your car away? Don't do that. You can use the money for a vacation. Um, you want to take a homeless person into your home? That's terrible and dangerous, and you're putting yourself at risk. You want to take your bonus this year, and you want to bless a family with it? Well, don't be crazy. You've worked hard for that money, and if they worked harder, they wouldn't need your money. I'm sure we've all heard that kind of thing when we've tried to step out. I, I was in exclusive books just this week, and I was sitting in these, this sort of chair huddle, typing away at my sermon, because I find odd places to just go, go find refuge. Um, but I'm typing away at my sermon, and there's a homeless guy sitting across, and, and this young guy just comes, and he's got a Bible in his hands, and he goes, you know what, I, I just want to bless you with a Bible. And the guy just goes, no, thank you, I'm not interested. And you just see this dejected look on this young guy's face. And I, I'm looking at him and I'm going, you know what, dude? Well done. Well done for stepping out. Well done for doing the hard thing. Don't let his reaction or the world convince you that what you're doing is crazy. Friends, as we step out and say to Jesus, everything I have and all that I am is yours. Do with it as you will. As we do that, he will give us opportunities to love and bless others with the love of Jesus. And it's not always going to be a radical gesture. Sometimes it's going to be a little bit of money or a lunch, or it's going to be speaking to someone we normally wouldn't probably speak to. 
and whatever it might be, whatever, what we will eventually discover is this. While it may be the world's assumption that looking after our own interests is the best thing that will make us happy, it's often in these moments of generosity that we see Jesus. So Jesus speaks and he says, if we're loving and living Jesus in this world, chances are people will hate us and they will persecute us. And he says this to us, but, but I hope, my hope for each and every one of us is that we won't let the world dictate our temperature and our zeal for God. We cannot let the world dictate our temperature and zeal for God. They will hate seeing heaven here because when they see it, it convicts and it pulls on their conscience and it makes them uncomfortable and they simply can't understand this kind of love if they are not rooted in this kind of love. So yes, living and loving Jesus is always going to cost us something, but it also changes lives, it changes destinies, it changes futures, it changes this world. So let's become lovers of Jesus who run after him, amen, who fall more and more in love with him, amen, and who submit our hearts and our lives to him, amen. Let's pray, let's pray. Jesus, we want to give ourselves up this morning. We are not strong enough to love you and walk with you on our own. We just can't do it, and we need you. We need you deeply and we need you desperately and we believe you are worth it, Jesus. We believe others are worth it, Jesus. That you're better than anything else we could ever have in this life or the next life. And we want you. And when we don't, then we want to want you. Be all in us. Take all of us. Have your way with us. We pray that John 15 will stay with us far beyond just today and that we will remain forever rooted in you and you in us. We love you, Jesus. Help us love you and your people more. Help us love you and your people more. In Jesus' name, amen.